Well, seeing how today is the season of Pentecost, I want us to look at a passage that deals with the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. And the passage I have in mind is Romans chapter 8, and in particular, verses 1 to 17. So here's the plan. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11 today, and then come back next week and look at verses 12 to 17. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Romans 8, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 11. The Apostle Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace." For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if it were the case... I'm really glad it's not the case, but if it were the case that I could only possess one chapter of the Bible, and just one, the one chapter I would choose is this one, Romans chapter 8. This great chapter that overflows with the grace and glory of God. His grace and glory that in turn gives abiding assurance to the Christian believer. Assurance that the glorious God of grace loves the believer with an unbreakable love. Love that declares that there's no condemnation and no separation for those who are in Christ. For just as this great chapter is bookended by no condemnation, verse 1, and no separation, verse 39, so is the life of the Christian bookended. And knowing this, believing this, trusting in this, gives the believer an abiding assurance. And my friends, we need this assurance, just as the original readers of Romans needed this assurance. First, Paul goes on to make clear in this chapter, in verses 18 to 27, none of us have yet arrived. We've not yet come to our final destination. No, we the followers of Jesus like the rest of humanity, live in a world that's filled with failure and frustration. We make our home in a groaning world, one that groans under the burden of brokenness, brutality, darkness, disease, and decay. 
And we Christians aren't immune to any of this. We know pain and perplexity in our relationships. We're aware of sorrow and shame. We've all tasted the loss and the lingering effects of death. We know what it means to blow it big time in the Christian life. And in light of all this, in light of all this failure, frustration, pain, perplexity, failure that we have, we know how easy it is to succumb to doubt, to doubt that God cares for us, that God is there for us, that God loves us. And Paul knew this. He knew it personally. And therefore, he wrote this chapter to aid us in our struggle for assurance. And central to everything Paul says here is the person and work of the Holy Spirit, who's mentioned no less than 19 times in this chapter. And according to the passage we just read, verses 1 to 11, it's the Spirit who comes to us, who's been given to us in order to immerse us in the assurance of God's forgiveness, to empower us with the assurance of God's freedom, and to encourage us concerning the assurance of God's future. And it's these three things, God's forgiveness, God's freedom, and God's future that I want us to ponder this morning as we continue to make our way through this chapter. So first then, the Holy Spirit and the assurance of God's forgiveness. You see, when we come to Romans 8, we're actually coming to the climax of a long argument that Paul began back in the middle of chapter 3. And it's an argument for the gospel. The good news of how God has dealt decisively with humanity's greatest problem through Jesus. Namely, the problem of sin and death. And bringing this argument to its climax, Paul, at the beginning of this chapter, gives us a simple summary of the gospel. He's been arguing for the gospel, and now he gives us a simple summary of the gospel. In other words, he's not moving on to something else. He's continuing his argument. And in doing so, he gives us this simple summary, and we, we can recognize the summary if we read verses 1 to 4 in a particular way. The particular way I have in mind is this. Read verses 1 to 4 by, first of all, taking out verse 2 and the end of verse 4. Now, we're going to come back to these verses. We're not skipping over them. But if we read verses 1 to 4 by taking out verse 2 and the end of verse 4, we begin to see this summary We begin to recognize that what Paul's given us here is one of the greatest summaries of the gospel in the entire Bible. The gospel of how God has removed the condemnation that stood against us through the sending of His Son. Look at what Paul says. Again, leaving out for a moment verse 2 and the end of verse 4. In verse 1 he writes, There is therefore now no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for those who belong to Jesus. How can Paul say this? There's no condemnation right now in the present. Well, verse 3, there is no condemnation because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. In other words, the law, although a good gift from God, couldn't give life to sinners. Oh, the law speaks of life, but the law couldn't secure life. And therefore, no amount of trying to keep the law can save the sinner, for none of us have kept it. None of us have loved God and loved neighbor perfectly, which means all the law can do for unredeemed sinners is pronounce guilt and demand judgment. 
The law can't remove the divine condemnation we rightly deserve for our rebellion against our maker. No, all it can do is intensify the condemnation that we deserve for our sin. However, what the law couldn't do was never actually intended to do. God himself has now done. How? Well, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin as a sin offering. In love, God the Father sent his son to become a human. And as a human, Jesus willingly died for us. Simply put, God sent his own eternal son, his own eternal and beloved son, to live the life we failed to live, to die the death we most certainly deserve. And he did it, verse 4, in order to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in us. Because you see, the law of God required obedience, perfect obedience from humanity. So the Son, as a human, was obedient in every part and in every way for us. At the same time, the law required condemnation for disobedience. So the Son, as a human, was willingly condemned on the cross, not for His disobedience, but for our disobedience. And therefore, in Jesus, the righteous requirement of the law has been met. It's been satisfied. It's been fulfilled. Through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, what has God actually done? According to Paul, he's condemned sin. In Jesus being condemned in our place, becoming sin, God actually condemned sin. And therefore, if sin has been condemned forever through Jesus' death, then there could be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, in Christ, there is now only pardon and acceptance. For in Christ, God has decisively declared us, sinners that we are, He has declared us in Christ perfectly righteous in His sight, which means we don't have to earn or maintain the loving favor of God. No, all we must, quote, do is receive it in faith by trusting in Jesus who was willingly slaughtered for our sake. But here's the question. It's by faith, but is that it? How do we really get into Christ? Well, only by the Spirit. It's the Spirit who enables us to believe in Jesus. Better, who enables us to believe into Jesus so that our lives are bound up with His life so that we become united to Christ. Put another way, the only way we can personally benefit from the historical and objective act of Jesus' accomplishment on the cross that took place 2,000 years ago, the only way we can benefit from it is by the present and subjective work of the Spirit in our lives. Without the Spirit, the accomplishment of Christ is of no benefit to us. John Calvin put it this way, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, we're separated from him. And in this state, all that he's suffered, all that he's done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. 
Christ remains outside of us unless the Spirit comes and applies His work to us. And that brings us back to verse 2 and the end of verse 4, where Paul writes, The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's the Spirit who connects us to the past accomplishment of Christ on the cross so that we can be confident that His saving death was for us, was for me, and was for you. And if this is true, that in Christ no condemnation, in this very moment no condemnation, if you are in Christ Jesus, the reason that's true is because you've been forgiven fully. And if you've been forgiven fully, then you need not fear condemnation. Christ has dealt decisively with it, which means for us, if we're in Christ, God isn't against us. God isn't against you. No, God is for you. He loves you. He's forgiven you. And God's forgiving love doesn't ebb and flow. It's not as if God one day says, ah, yeah, I love them. Not so much. Oh, they blew it today. I love them. Oh, they kind of got it right today. I guess I'll love them. He's not up there with a daisy, you know. I love them. I love them not. I love them. I love them not. No, God's love doesn't ebb and flow. No, it's constant in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And with that, we come to our second point, which is the spirit and the assurance of God's freedom. You see, in being connected to Christ by the Spirit, we've been given the double cure for sin. In Christ, we've been cured from sin's guilt, no condemnation. And we've been cured from sin's power in that we're no longer enslaved to sin. No, in Christ, we've been set free. And we've been set free because we've been made alive by the Spirit. That's why Paul refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of life in verse 2. And then goes on to say in verse 10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. In being declared righteous in Christ... The Spirit has brought us the very life of Christ. And in being made alive by the Spirit, we've moved from being under the power of sin to now being under the power of Jesus. My, my friends, if you're a Christian, you have undergone a glorious transformation and a genuine transition. You're no longer who you were before you were a Christian. For apart from Christ, you were once in the flesh. And by flesh, Paul isn't here referring to our physicality as if it's bad to be physical creatures. No, our physical biology isn't the problem. Flesh here isn't to be equated with physicality. Rather, flesh here is to be equated with corruptibility. And by that, I mean how sin has corrupted us in every part and in every way. And therefore, the word flesh here is referring to our sinful nature. And what characterizes a sinful nature? Well, that's what Paul tells us in, in verses 5 to 8. He says, this is what characterizes a life 
outside of Christ. Look what he says. He says, the one who's in the flesh possesses a certain mindset or disposition that's fixated on what? On self, on living only for self. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds, their desires on the flesh, on doing what only the sinful nature wants to do. And the sinful nature is consumed with self-living, with autonomy, rather than living under God's authority. At the same time, Paul says those in the flesh live in a continual state of death. They're separated from God and His life. Look at verse 6. To set the mind on the flesh is death. Living in the flesh is a living death because it's a life separated from God who alone is life. Paul goes on. The one in the flesh also possesses a mindset that's antagonistic toward God. Antagonistic toward God and His Word. Verse 7, for the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. God, I don't want you to have any say in my life. Have any part. I want to do it my way. You may hear Frank Sinatra in that, but uh, we'll leave it at that. It's antagonistic toward God. Antagonistic toward His Word. Verse 7, for the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to His law. Indeed, it cannot. It doesn't want to, and it's not able to. And then finally, Paul says in verse 8, that the one who's in the flesh cannot please God. For those in the flesh have no desire for God and no motivation to please God. And here's the hard news. By nature... Left to ourselves, we are all in the flesh. We're all born with an innate desire to please ourselves rather than to please God. We're born into a living death rather than real life. We're born with a prior hatred and hostility toward God. And no education or effort on our part can fundamentally change this. Oh, We may be able to curb our behavior a bit, but we can't change our hearts or transform our self-centered mindset. No, only the Holy Spirit has the power to change us from the inside out, which means that our conversion to Christ, listen to this, our conversion to Christ is the great miracle. We may read of all the miracles in the Gospels and be awed by them, as we should, but the great miracle is that you've come to Christ and you believe in Christ Because left to yourself, you never would have come to Christ. But you have. Why? Because of the work and the drawing of the Holy Spirit who's led us to Christ and who connects us to Christ. It's the Spirit, in the Spirit, that we've actually passed from death to life. By the Spirit, we've moved from being under the rule of sin to being under the rule of grace, the rule of Christ. Which means if you belong to Jesus... If the Spirit of Jesus dwells in you and He dwells in every genuine believer, you're no longer in the flesh. No, you're now in the Spirit. That's why Paul says in verse 9, you, however, speaking to Christians, you, however, aren't in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Do you realize what's happened to you in becoming a follower of Christ? 
You've actually been delivered from the pit of destruction, which is the flesh, in order to be raised up into a living temple of God. God's Spirit has flooded your life, and by the Spirit, God's Son has come to live within you, and He's come to live within you in order to free you from the destructive power of sin. How? Well, by asserting His good and gracious control. Jesus knows full well if you are left in control, you will destroy your life. And that is why he comes to assert his good and gracious control. And because this radical transformation has taken place, because the Spirit of Jesus lives within us, we can actually begin now to learn to live consistently with Christ. Now this, of course, doesn't mean automatic perfection. Even though we've died to sin, sin still hasn't died completely to us. We're no longer enslaved to sin. But that doesn't mean sin doesn't still wage war against us. You think, well, how's this freedom? Well, it's the freedom to fight. To fight against our sinful flesh as we learn to say no to sin and yes to Christ. That in that fight to see sin for what it is, as rebellion that destroys and to see Christ for who He is as better, as better than anything else. Being a Christian means learning by the Spirit to now set our minds on the way of Christ rather than the way of self. Being a Christian means engaging in the ever-present struggle of giving ourselves and our desires to Jesus rather than turning away from Him to do our own thing. And we can only do this as we learn to walk by the Spirit. Because you see, only the Spirit can give us the ability and the desire to say to Jesus truly, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Is this your heart's cry to Jesus? Do you long for Jesus to hold sway over your life? Is your desire for God's name to be honored, His kingdom to come, His will to be done? And when you sin against Jesus, and you will sin against Him, do you long to repent and turn back to Him? Are you mindful of Jesus in your words and actions, and how you handle your money, go about your work, manage your household, and steward your body? See, these are the kinds of questions we need to be asking our own hearts every single day as we learn to set our minds on the Spirit we think, well, how do you set your mind on the Spirit? Well, you set your mind on the Spirit by setting your mind on God's Word, His Word that teaches us about Christ's grace, that transforms us into Christ's image, and that assures us of Christ's faithfulness, that Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. And it's in setting our minds on the Spirit, as we set our minds on God's Word, as we listen to God's Word, that we actually begin to find true confidence that we can be confident and assured of life and peace. As Paul says in verse 6, to set the mind on the Spirit is what? Life and peace. Because it's the Spirit who brings us the life of Christ. Christ's life that's stronger than sin and death. And it's the Spirit who brings us Christ's peace. What does Christ's peace say to us personally? And even corporately as a church, he says you are loved, you're forgiven, you're accepted, and you have a future. 
And that brings us to our last point, which is the Holy Spirit and the assurance of God's future. So as we've seen, it's the Holy Spirit who immerses us in God's forgiveness and who empowers us to live freely and faithfully unto Christ. But at the same time, it's the Spirit who encourages us concerning God's future. Look at verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Presently in Christ, there's no condemnation for sin and there's no bondage to sin. And that's indeed good news. But there's still a problem. That problem is the prospect of biological death. One day, we'll all die. One day we'll breathe our last, and when we do, the coffin lid will shut, because each of us are mortal. As Paul says in verse 10, these bodies that we have now, that we currently possess, are in death, and they're headed to death because of sin, as a consequence of sin. And yet, this prospect of death can't and won't Get the final word over the Christian. One day the very Spirit who dwells in us personally will raise up these bodies of ours so that we might share fully in the resurrection life of Jesus. And when He does, these present bodies of death will become bodies pulsating with life, God's own life. And as a result, our bodies will become perfect vehicles for loving God, loving others, and loving God's creation properly and gratefully. My friends, the Holy Spirit didn't leave Jesus in the grave. And He won't leave you in the grave either. And we can be sure of this because the very Spirit who will raise us up then already dwells in us now. And in dwelling in us, His work is this. He enables us to continue to trust in Jesus to rest in Jesus, and to follow Jesus in the hope of one day seeing Jesus face to face. And on that day, when we finally see Jesus face to face, we'll finally realize what we're already told in Revelation 21, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes because death itself will be no more. This is the Christian hope. Question for us, is it our hope? One that leads us to say with John at the very end of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Well, let me conclude by putting all this together. I think we would all agree with the Apostle Peter whenever he said that Paul is sometimes hard to understand. Paul wrote very compactly. He says a lot, and it always contains a punch. So let me just sort of sum up, something to leave you with. We put all this together, we realize what Paul tells us in verse 2 is this, the Spirit has set us free. Not will set you free, but has set you free from what? The law of sin and death. How has he done this? By bringing us into Christ where there is now, today, now no condemnation. And there can be no condemnation in Christ because on the cross, sin itself was condemned, done away with. And in condemning sin, 
There's now only forgiveness for the believer. And therefore, if you belong to Jesus, you've been freed from the guilt and condemnation of sin. But not only have you been freed from condemnation for sin, you've also been freed from the power of sin. And you've been freed because the Spirit of Jesus lives within you. And in living in you, the Spirit gives you new life. A new life where you no longer have to sin. You're no longer obligated to sin. No, you can actually fight sin as you learn to set your mind on God's Spirit, as you set your mind on God's Word. Sin is no longer your master. No, Christ is your master. Your master who set you free and given you His Spirit that you might learn to serve Him gratefully and in love. And at the same time as the Spirit who has set us free from the law of death and that He's given you life now, and He'll give it to you in full in the future. And on that day, you'll become everything God created and redeemed you to be, which is a glorious human being fashioned in the image of Jesus. You have been forgiven. You have been free. And you have been guaranteed a future. These are the gifts of God in Christ given to us by the Spirit. The question is, have you opened these gifts? Do you actually cherish these gifts that alone can give us the assurance of life and peace no matter our circumstances in the present? These are the gifts that God has given to you in Christ and by the Spirit. Don't let them stay in the packaging. Open them up. Live into them more and more and rejoice. And as you do, I trust the Spirit will deepen you in the assurance that is yours, not in yourself, not in your circumstances, but in Christ, worked into us by the Spirit. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for such a great chapter in your Holy Word. There is so much here, so much more that could be said. So we pray that by your Spirit, you would lead us to meditate upon this more and more, to be deepened in the assurance that we have in Christ and by the Spirit. We thank you for the gift of your Son, that you sent him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you sent your Spirit who connects us to you, that we are united to you. You're no longer outside of us, but in us. And this is our hope. This is our confidence. This is our assurance. Amen.